Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivit Karnak. I'm Christiana Pieres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we set the scene for the race to zero in the 2020s by setting out what's at stake for all of us. We discuss the re-entry of the US into the Paris Agreement and we speak with world-renowned scientist Johan Rockström. Plus, there's music from Ayani. Thanks for being here. So here we are, 2021, the beginning of season three. We're back together again. Of course, the break that we were supposed to take hasn't really been a break because so much has been going on. We've been doing bonuses and dropping in investigative reporting, but that's all been good. And we hope that you, the listener, have been enjoying it. But here we are. This is the year that 2020 was supposed to be. We're kicking off 2021, this amazing road ahead of us now with an unbelievable wind at our backs that we could barely have imagined a year ago. We have science-driven policy in the White House. We have clarity from government leaders all around the world. We have a US back in the Paris Agreement. Actually, it's very strange. I mean, even just a few months ago, it all seemed we were getting distracted by COVID. But now it feels that we are collectively able to focus on the big issues and climate is right at the front of that. So I don't know about you two, but I'm starting this year pretty high on optimism. The outrage is always there, but the optimism is riding high. Yeah, I'm also riding high for as usual. I was going to say for change, but that's but that's tongue in cheek. Enormous surprise. Um, but but actually, Tom, you said this is the year 2020 was meant to be. Actually, I think 2021 is so much better, as you uh, mentioned, than 2020 because for one, for everything that you've mentioned. But I want to add to that list because I continue to think that COVID has taught us many, many lessons. COVID has broken our travel habit, mindless travel habit, whether that's from home to the office or from home to three times around the world. That is fundamental, fundamental to our quality of life personally, but also to greenhouse gas emissions. It has broken the habit of everyone needing office space and hence what real estate is going to be like. It's broken um, that, uh, that commitment to very, very quick urbanization. I'm going to be really interested to see urbanization rates from now on because I think most people, or if not most, but many people will prefer to live outside in the green and commute via Zoom rather than commute uh, via a vehicle uh, or in fact even live in the city. So there is so much actually that we have going for us now in 2021 that we didn't have in 2020. Of course, in addition to a true White House with all the lights on. (laughs) You're absolutely right, Christiana. And and actually, what an amazing time to be putting this podcast out because we have had just had such a statement of intent from the Biden administration just a couple of days ago. Um, Wednesday during the first week, first full week of the administration was Climate Day and a whole series of commitments and announcements was rolled out. John Kerry and Gina McCarthy, both of whom, of course, have been on this podcast, Gina just last week, came out and laid out both the international and the domestic agenda on climate. So first, John Kerry reaffirmed the US's commitment to working with other large emitters to ambitious actions at home and together, reminding us that the US, China and the EU 
account for more than half of all emissions globally and that working together has to be the priority. He also firmly committed to science-backed actions, including accelerating the energy transition and that President Biden will host a leaders' summit on the 22nd of April, Earth Day, of course, so that the US can play its part in ensuring a strong outcome at COP26 in Glasgow in November this year. So just night and day on the international scene compared to where we were. Of course, all of that coming hot on the heels of the US re-entry into the Paris Agreement. Um, however, without a clear domestic agenda, it's going to be tough for the US to convince the rest of the world that this is really different. And Gina McCarthy has stepped up, promising the US will submit its nationally determined contribution before the summit in April, which is a really aggressive timeline. Um, executive orders targeting oil and gas are expected to be pushed forward as well, uh, with wide-reaching protection of federal lands within Biden's executive reach. Now, apparently, we'll have to wait a little longer to see what the administration decides about coal, something that the US campaign groups will be pushing for quickly. But McCarthy said that it will be reviewed under the wider remit that she's undertaking right now. And anyone who was listening last week will know that that means it's going to be met with energy and determination and commitment. And my favourite quote from today was when John Kerry came out and said, failure is not an option. Absolutely right. And that level of commitment is what we now need, have needed so urgently, and now we have back in the White House. <laughs> Which is a very nice thing to have. You're absolutely right, as ever. This is what season three is all about. It is about this fantastic new year and very exciting to be introducing our Race to Zero series. And just for the listeners, we've been having quite a debate about whether the new Race to Zero music is going to be used in this episode or in future episodes. And actually, it's not been approved. Well, for the listener will know by now whether they heard new music at the beginning or not. But if they didn't, then but it's we coming don't. in a future episode. Do you? Does Clay? <laughs> the, the, essentially, there is new music coming. It's of a different character. It's 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 sort of I think remixed a, is the technical term. But yes, they, yeah. thank you. Um, yeah. So that's something to look forward to. Um, but the Race to Zero is about more than just the music. <laughs> is it not? It is about more than just the music. Did, the jingle, the jingle is what you're talking about, not the music that comes at the end. Let's be specific here. Otherwise, we get our listeners very confused. We ourselves do not quite know what we're doing with this music, but it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be uh, tremendous. Tom, the race to zero. Well, I mean, I think to me, the place where we should start describing the race to zero, of course, our good friend and friend of this podcast, Nigel Topping, who listeners will have, will have heard from many times and will hear again, mm. is leading the race to zero as the UK's high-level champion for climate action. But I'd start by saying that 2021 contains something that is very important for the world in trying to deal with complex long-term problems, and that is a deadline. Most mm. years we kind of run through and there are these deadlines that we try to create. We want to get commitments from national governments, from corporates, whatever. But then every now and then these very important years turn up where something is going to happen, a big summit, a deadline of some kind. And actually that drives a whole bunch of additional commitment. And this is one of those years. And that deadline is, of course, Glasgow. And as we learn on the road to Paris and has been experienced many times before, when you have those deadlines, you can use them to great effect. And that's what the world's doing around the race to zero. So the high level champions and the rest of the world are all now mobilizing key sectors to think, how can we transform more rapidly key areas of our economies across business, across cities, across regions, across investors, to try to accelerate climate action, to ensure that it comes more into line 
with what we need it to be to keep us to 1.5 degrees. And Paul, you are looking extremely confused. Am I you, doing you a bad job? You me. No, no, no. Okay. You confuse <laughs> me because, you see, I thought, you see, I thought <laughs> this is the Paris Agreement was all the nations in the world came together. The gavel went down and every single country supported this fantastic agreement. And now you're not talking about countries. You're talking about these uh, non-state actors, these companies, these investors, these cities. I'm confused. What's, what's going on? Well... Progress on these issues is a grand alliance, right? It's a grand alliance between national governments and all other actors in society who can really make decisions. But as we experienced in Paris, and as you know, Paul, from your decades working in this, often it's the other parts of the economy away from the national governments that can really lead the charge. So the question is, and we've been debating this around this series, should it just be about what actors other than national governments are doing, what we talked about before, business, cities, regions, investors, or should we also do deep dives into what national national countries are doing deep dives into Na- what country- countries deep dives into what countries they're my favorite kind <laughs> christiana what's your view on this well my view is that uh, paul is um acting ignorant whereas actually he is fundamentally one of the anchor points of this um stakeholder engagement through his day job um but thank you for asking the question paul and and the fact is that we did have long conversations. And um, it seems that we have made a decision, although it wasn't entirely clear to me when we started this conversation, that we had decided. So the race to zero means the race to zero net emissions, as we know. Um, And we did debate or continue to debate whether that's going to be only on non-governments who do not formally negotiate anything at the COP um, in Glasgow or where, uh, whether we were going to include what states are doing, because actually national governments are also doing very exciting things. Mm. Like, for example, we just uh, read that China has added almost 72 gigawatts of wind power just last year, which is more than doubled than the previous record. (laughs) It is just beyond, right? I mean, so fantastic. We remember when President Xi um, made a commitment in September um, to be carbon neutral before 2060. And here they are, you know, well on to the delivery of that. So it's very tempting to drop in everything that countries are doing. And and we will be admittedly very tempted throughout the entire year to update our listeners on what the U.S. is doing because for a change, there is going to be many, many contributions from the U.S., starting from the fact that the Biden administration chose Wednesday, the 27th of January, to be Climate Day with all of these announcements. So we are going to be very tempted, but we're going to try to focus the Race to Zero series on what non-states are doing and then pepper in lots of information of what countries are doing. Is that is that clear, do you think, Paul? Well, yeah. I mean, I you know, I think... Business runs the world. I've been thinking that for 30 years, but I don't think business is yet aware that it's I run thought, the world. I thought your aspiration was to run the world, Paul. <laughs> yes, and it's it's not going as well as I'd hoped. Uh, by this point in my career, I'm expecting to have a sort of an enormous, basically castle, uh, several. Actually. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about climate change. So th- these non-state actors um, are kind of, I, I think they're the, they're the game. 
And I think national governments are kind of like the rules. I mean, that's a bit simplistic, but they, they can't exist without each other. Um, the national governments are, are seeking to empower, to facilitate, to, to create the enabling conditions for industry. And then national and global companies are, 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 and cities and investors are together, kind of coming together. That's the theme, it, it seems to me. And, and to me, Glasgow is like an opening ceremony of these, this kind of the great Olympics that will run between now and 2030. As, 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 as countries and, their, and industry and investors kind of collaborate to try and make the best structural plans to achieve these incredibly challenging, exciting goals. And it's going to be just the best and most exciting year, I hope and believe. And I think the Race to Zero will carry us through as an incredible theme with, 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 with Glasgow as the sort of, as you said, uh, Tom, the, the finish line that, that gets us there. But Christiana, let me ask you a difficult question because you're actually doing your email and when you want, should be concentrating on the... <laughs> uh, which is fair enough, but I just wanted to let the listener know, you know. Um, this is how we bring Christiana in. You... I'm not doing an email, Paul. I am attending to very urgent other issues. And as any wonderful woman, I can actually multitask. You don't know how jealous uh, men are about that because we just do one thing and we, we just think it's tremendously important whatever we're doing. But you do moment. it very well and you concentrate on it. So not, you know, don't, uh, don't put yourselves down. Well, thank you very much indeed for, for I feel so me. put down somehow. No, no, but, but, but justifiably with evidence, uh, fact, I, I won't No, here's, here's the thing about multitasking before you go into that, okay? I have reached the conclusion that, yes, I can do multitasking, but if you multitask, the fact is that you're doing several things sort of okay, but you're not doing anything with full presence. So that's the price that you pay. So many men, but also some women who focus only on one thing are actually paying much more attention and being much more present to that which is going on. So my admiration for those who do not multitask. Mm, yeah, my experience of multitasking is doing several things extremely badly rather than fairly well. So yeah, that's um, that. But maybe that's a good analogy for what we decided to do with this series and focus it just on the non-state actors rather than trying to also do national governments. The, the problem with knowing more and more about less and less is eventually you know everything about nothing. So you have to be a little bit careful. But Christiana, you have this extraordinary uh, ability to bring all the world's nations together. You did it in 2015, the, the, this landmark agreement that's on the front page of every newspaper for the rest of time. Oh my God, seem. I'm really nervous about what the question is going to be now. <laughs> How are we going to do it with the non-state actors? Well, we build actually on past experience. That's something that we've been doing now for years, also since before 2015, um, as you well know that um, it was actually under Tom's baton that we started bringing non-state actors together to encourage governments to adopt the ambitious decisions that they had to adopt. Um, but something that we started very much as a, I would say, a black ops operation has actually exploded now and um, is very much in the forefront. Nigel Tobbing being the champion for the UK, champion of uh, climate action, has a huge team under him. How many people do he, does he have? I have no idea. 7,400. Yeah, more every time. Yeah, I mean, just a huge I'm lying, team. Listeners. Whereas I'm lying, Tom but it's big. and Gonzalo Munoz, the champion for Chile, they're a, they're a team, they're a duo. Yeah, 
Yeah, they're a team. Whereas Tom was doing this, you know, with I think four or five people stuck in some office that nobody was supposed to know where it was. So that's actually all a good thing, right? That what was covert is now not just overt, but actually the most interesting game in town mm. in COP26. Because COP26, yes, we will have countries coming around to say, here is how much I've done and here is how much more I can do. Um, but it's honestly, it's going to be difficult for the press and for lay people to get hugely excited about a country that goes from, I don't know, a 26% reduction to a 32% reduction. It's not exactly what captures your imagination, although hugely important. I do think that the imagination will be captured by everything that is going to be happening on the non-state side, because that's where innovation is happening. That's where we really get to the nuts and bolts of this transformation. And technology is changing so, so fast. Um, and the, the coming together now of AI, of digitalization, of renewable energy is just so exciting that we're going to see many things being announced at COP26 that we didn't even think was possible. Yeah. So um, I'm very excited. And the other piece that I think is very exciting is that finally, the Cinderella of this whole climate action, which is everything to do with land use, food systems, mm -hmm. um, cutting down on deforestation, all of that piece, I think, is also ripe for explosion at COP26. So um, I'm very excited about this year and Glasgow. Amazing. And, and what this gives us a chance to do for the listener who's wondering after this slightly chaotic conversation exactly what this series is going to contain is uh, if you followed Outrage Optimism last year, you will have heard uh, we did these deep dives into the future of transportation. And your feedback was that you really liked those because they helped us and you to understand in greater detail what's really going on with shipping, what's really happening with aviation. Talk to some of the key people involved in those sectors and really unpack what the future could look like. Well, that's the model. We're going to be taking a similar approach and looking at some of the most exciting areas that are unfolding with new technology, with amazing innovators, with solutions that are emerging all around the world. And once a month, we'll bring you one of those special editions. So if you have ideas of things you want us to focus on, do let us know. We'd be really keen to hear from you. And we've got ideas around what the first few are going to be, but it's going to be such an exciting year that's going to unfold at such pace. Uh, we really want to hear from you. One of the great things about the last month or so, actually, while we've been off, is we've had loads of correspondence from you. We mm. asked for that, and you fed back to us, which was great. And then we've also had more and more engagement. Just recently, we heard on Twitter from Ahmed, and what he said was that, from his experience, much of the messaging that's coming from the Biden campaign so far has stopped at the idea and the detail around how this transformation is going to be achieved and how people will actually gain more than they will lose in this transformation. And that's such an interesting question because it demonstrates that for people, it's still hard to kind of get your arms around and see what this world is going to be that we're trying to create. So in part, what we're going to try and do in the series, and that's a big question, it's hard for us to unpack that for you right now, but in a way, this series is sort of a response to that question. It's to unpack these different sectors, how they're unfolding, how beneficial that transformation can be for the planet, but also how beneficial it can be for people. And living in that future is going to be a cleaner future with better jobs, more prosperous, and all those other good things. So that's what this Race to Zero series is about. It's not the entirety of what we're doing in Outrage and Optimism this year. We will continue with our regular program three times a month. And then once a month, we'll do these deep dives. But today, we wanted to start off the whole year 
normal programming and Race to Zero series by reminding us all what's at stake in this transformation and who mm. better to take us through that than world-renowned scientist, Johan Rockström. Uh, we had the privilege of speaking with Johan just the other day. He is the director of the Potsdam Institute of Climate Impact Research. He's best known for his influential work on the Planetary Boundaries Framework, on which he's delivered two outstanding TED Talks, one of them as part of the recent TED Countdown, and I cannot recommend them highly enough. And Clay will put links to these in the show notes. We caught up with him to hear his compelling and sobering science-based case for a united global commitment to the race to zero. Here's Jochen. Johan, hello. Uh, welcome to a new year and a new world, I must say. Thank you so much for joining us. Actually, just barely a week after the inauguration of President Biden and uh, VP Harris. I know that we're all still on a high on cloud 99 from just from that inauguration day, how meaningful how beautiful, how, you know, what a breath of fresh air of healing and compassion and engagement with issues that really matter. Um, and so we are, we are delighted that you are joining us today because we feel we have to balance our delight at new leadership with a deeper understanding of the reality that we're facing um, and for that, we have invited you to be our guest uh, for our first episode of this year. And we really just want, Johan, for you to ground us, to ground us, bring us down mm. from cloud 99 and ground <laughs> us into the reality of what we're facing here. Um, you, you gave an absolutely brilliant TED Talk in October of last year in which you provided a very, very sobering update of uh, the challenges that we're facing with respect to planetary boundaries and how we have exceeded them. And you described that, uh, that latest review that you made of these systems was the shock of your career. Could you please explain that to us? Why was it so shocking? Why was it not... Uh, already known how bad things were. Mm. Yeah, I'll do that. And, and first of all, wonderful to to see you virtually, Christiana, and um, great to be here. And and you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's it's a moment of relief. Um, at at uh, the inauguration, the first thing I did was to send out a tweet, basically saying, "U.S. is back. What a relief!" A voice of unanimous support from the scientific community in the world, because I think there's not one scientist on this planet that doesn't, you know, just just feel that the weight has uh, <laughs> yeah. released uh, with with you know has several lifted. kilos has lifted, and um, and and just literally hour after that. President Biden brought the U.S. back into into your Paris Agreement, our <laughs> Paris Agreement. So that's, of course, uh, our our phenomenal. Paris Agreement, our, our collective Paris agreement. Paris agreement. Of course, of course. Yes. Yeah, so what what does science tell us, and why was this the shock of my life? So, as you know, we have for the past ten years been exploring, uh, basically trying to answer two questions. One is, what are the the, the natural or biophysical processes and systems that regulates 
the stability of the entire planet, the planetary boundaries. And we've been able to scientifically put quantitative targets that gives us a safe operating space for a stable climate, but also functioning natural ecosystems for human well-being. And these, these boundaries are set because the scientific evidence already 10 years back showed that if we transgress these boundaries, if we move beyond them, we enter a danger zone that can trigger nonlinear changes, what we call tipping points, where things start moving in the wrong direction and are unstoppable, such as irreversible melting of the green ice sheet or changes in the ocean circulation or that the Amazon rainforest flips over into becoming a savanna. Ten years back, when we did this assessment, we had evidence that Yes, these tipping points exist, but none of them have been crossed yet. Now, the the update, which was published in, in 2019, which is just before the pandemic, showed, and that was the shock of, of my career, that, that nine out of the 15 known big systems, what we call tipping elements, are showing very severe signs of approaching tipping points. So not that they have crossed, but we have today evidence that they are either slowing down or behaving unnaturally or, or showing real signs of, of losing resilience and moving too close to tipping points. And among these nine, there are three that we could, you know, we haven't done it publicly, but, but I would argue that uh, scientifically we can say that we, we already must, must consider that they have very likely crossed tipping points already. And, and the number one is, is the cannery in the coal mine, the, the ground zero point, which is the Arctic summer sea ice. Mm. We've, we've passed the point of no return there, which is, as you know, affecting weather system in the northern hemisphere with heat waves and, and droughts and forest fires. It is impacting the entire Gulf Stream. It's even impacting the monsoon system that provides the rainfall for the Amazon rainforest. And it's even causing warmer surface temperatures that accelerates the melting of the West Antarctic ice shelf. So that's the number one. And the, and the number two is that a number of glaciers in West Antarctica are starting to irreversibly slide into the ocean, cross the tipping point, and which would, you know, commit ourselves to very likely another one to two meters of unstoppable sea level rise. And, and the final one is, is, of course, the system that we read about all the time now, the tipping point in the tropical coral reef systems in the world. So... That was, was the, the shock of my life, to, to recognize that what we identified 10 years back is now playing out faster than we had predicted, and that several of these tipping points are starting to be crossed. And we know that once we cross them, we, we push the on button of self-reinforced warming. So suddenly you see systems that, that turn from being our best friend of cooling and dampening our, our emission of greenhouse gases and, and fossil fuel burning, to becoming a foe, which means that when ice melts, the planet gets darker and absorbs more heat. When forests die back, they cannot absorb and, and, and be carbon sinks. So, so this is the, if you want to talk of a scientific nightmare, what, what keeps scientists you know, awake, at, awake at night is really losing the resilience of the planet. And, and so that was the state of science as, as, we, as we meet basically today. Wow. Christiana's speechless, unfortunately. I know. I am, I am speechless because um, 
Johan, I, I have um, been with you throughout so many years and in so many efforts, but I have never heard you state this in such a sobering fashion. I, I'm, I'm trying to regain my speech here. Uh, and I guess my follow-up question is, and so now what? Yeah. Would, you know, we, we, we keep on uh, saying or repeating what we hear from you and from scientists that the immediate goal here needs to be to reduce our global emissions by one half over the next nine years by 2030. Would that make any difference? Well, the sobering, or let's say the light in the tunnel answer is 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 quite a firm yes. It it will make a difference. So the, the nightmare assessment is that we are rapidly approaching tipping points faster than we had predicted. We may have already lost three of the big systems. Nine of 15 are in danger. It is it is a kind of a, a last warning signal from science. Science is saying, we have learned so much. Here are the red flags. We can deviate away from, from losing the remaining 12 systems we know of. And that that requires cutting emissions by half every decade and reaching a, a net zero world economy in 30 years time. The challenge, though, is that that will not be enough. It won't be enough to, to kind of phase ourselves away from fossil fuels in one generation, which is the task, we also need to keep all our remaining natural ecosystems intact. We need to become, you know, very, very careful caretakers of, of oceans and all the natural ecosystems on land. And, and as, as, as we know, we have not only, you know, burning fossil fuels in a way that has put us at risk, we've also destroyed 50% of the land-based ecosystems on Earth. We've lost 60% of the populations of, of wild mammals since, since just 1970, during my, well, during our lifetime. And so that's the task now, that if we can keep natural ecosystems intact and follow the carbon law of cutting emissions by half every decade, then um, at least from what we know today, we can still avoid the most what I would call the, 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 the catastrophe outcomes in the mm. sense that we would still have massive challenges. I mean, we have massive challenges already today at 1.2 degrees Celsius warming. And it's very challenging, but we can still probably uh, land not far away from 1.5 degrees Celsius. I would argue that that's still a target we should really, really aim at under all circumstances. It will be painful even at 1.5 because you should know that the planet has never been so warm since we left the last ice age. So, so already, as soon as we passed one degree Celsius, we're already outside of the warmest point since, since we entered the Holocene 12,000 years ago. But still, the, the, the scientific conclusion is that that would not trigger the other, the other nine mm. uh, or the 12 of the known 15 tipping elements. So I would... I would I would take the scientific evidence we have today as an even stronger, you know, support from the scientific community to to act with with urgency. 
Mm-hmm. Johan, it's it's so good to to hear you talk about this with such clarity. I mean, it's just the the degree of penetration which your your voice has had on this issue, and and I mean this this alarming warning, of course, which we've known is coming, right? To the point where we start saying, you know what, we're not approaching these tipping points anymore. We're beginning to cross them, and once we yeah. cross them, there's this very real um, possibility that that they'll slip beyond our control, and it's hard to hear. But um, I think it's good to be reminded of this on quite a regular basis for all of us who care about this issue. Can I just ask you to dig in in one particular point? Because you talked there about, um, you know, changes in land use as well. And I think many people intuitively understand burning fossil fuels, worsening climate change. And I think one of a big part of your work has been to um, explain the intersection between land use change, agriculture, and really what's happening. So I know it's a complicated area, but would you just kind of give us a bit of a, a an, an overview of that, and particularly how agriculture and how we feed ourselves is making the situation worse and could improve it? Mm. I, I think um, the, the starting point for that is is the basic reminder that since we started burning fossil fuels, you know, sometimes in the 1850s, from that moment up until today, terrestrial ecosystems, so land, has been our best friend by absorbing on average per year roughly 25%, 25% of our emissions caused by fossil fuel burning taken up by trees, biomass, and soils. Hmm. So the more we burn, the more stress we put on the planet, the more planet Earth has been helping us by just absorbing more and more. It's just a proof of the biophysical resilience of the system. You stress it, it's been protecting us. The the most important insight in this is that what have we also done during 150 years? Well, we have cut down forests, destroyed ecosystems, and transformed it into agriculture, infrastructure, and cities. So roughly 50% of the land area on planet Earth is today transformed, particularly into agriculture. Now, the the big drama is that when you look carefully at the numbers, the 25% of carbon uptake, all of it is in in natural ecosystems. So so agricultural land is actually the single largest emitter of greenhouse gases. So it's it's quite a, can you imagine just the drama that you have, you know, natural ecosystems, which is this tremendous carbon sink, but as soon as you transform it into food production, it actually turns into a carbon source. So agriculture is today roughly, um, you know, causing up to 24-25% of global emissions. That includes both deforestation and the production of food. Just plowing soils means that organic matter in the root zone gets more exposed to the sun and to the atmosphere and burns off and releases carbon dioxide. So, you know, we have to recognize that that food is the single largest cause, I mean, single largest economic sector behind emission of greenhouse gases. But not only that, food production is the prime cause why we're losing biodiversity, while we are cutting down trees, while we are consuming fresh water. 70% of the consumption of fresh water by us humans is for irrigation in food production. Food production is the biggest cause why we are emitting nitrous oxide from, uh, from our, our overuse of fertilizers. So to put it very simple, food is the number one single culprit behind transgressing planetary boundaries and putting the planet at risk, which means that food can also be the single largest solution Mm. to our future, together with, you know, 
phasing out fossil fuels. So there is this urgency point of decarbonizing the energy system, but also transforming the global food system. But as things stand today, food is, is a prime cause behind both climate change and undermining the life support systems in natural ecosystems. So, mm. But the good news is that this, this little summary to you is also showing how much knowledge we have here. I mean, we have a good handle on, on both the causes, but also, and we can come into that, many of the solutions that are out there to, to turn agriculture from being an emitter to becoming a part of the solution. Yeah, yeah and it, it is so um, good to hear you talk, uh, co- confirm something I think uh, we all know and, and many of our listeners know that there is a there is an absolute revolution in food science, in food production, and uh, you know all of our listeners. I hope and and everyone who who, who knows us, I, I hope is 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 considering this new extraordinary uh, duty and opportunity. But can I ask you a, a question, really, about the scientific community? You know, in my apartment here, I have a fire alarm, and. Um, you know, the scientific community are a fire alarm. And by the way, I mean, you know, you just said there's a fire, okay? And I, and I, if I can use the metaphor, there is a little light flashing on my fire alarm, you know, but the world is sleeping. And the way the fire alarm is designed is it makes this incredible noise and it wakes everybody up and, and, and we go to safety. And so my question for you, Johan, is, 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 is how can the scientific community best partner with, with, corporations, with investors, with civil society, with artists. You know, as you were talking, I'm starting to wonder, where are the military? Where is our national security institutions? How can scientists best partner, you know, in a society that is going to protect itself? Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think you yourself, and particularly you, Chris, Christiana, you're sitting on the answer yourself, because I think that the very title of this podcast has has the answer. I mean, it's it's a how do you create a cocktail that has equal equal elements of outrage with equal elements of optimism? I find it today absolutely fundamental, and then you know that so well, Christiana, that we need to put all the cards on the table and never ever back off from communicating the, the disastrous risks we're facing, the, the fire alarm, the evidence behind the fire alarm, loud and clear. Many, many colleagues of mine have been warning me over the years that please don't scare, please don't go out with all the evidence because it can paralyze people. I'm absolutely convinced that that's not the case. I think it mobilizes people. It causes the outrage and the adrenaline we actually need to rise at this situation. Because if you hear a fire alarm, you get pumped up and you need to do something. The challenge is that it's pointless to pump up the adrenaline if you don't have the fire hose, you, you need yeah. to be able to call the fire brigade. And, and we scientists have been quite bad at that, to be honest. We've tended to get the bell ringing without giving the number you call for the solution. The beauty today is that, that we have a complete maturity on both scientific fields, the science of risk and the science of solution. And that's a very exciting moment to be in because it means we have a new narrative that's not only emerging, it's, it's really in place. We have the scalable solutions to deviate from disaster. Yeah. Isn't that quite powerful? Um, can I bring you full circle on that, Johan? And uh, as you well say, no good sounding the alarm if we can't bring in the fire hose. So let me bring you full circle on that where we were before. 
what is the fire hose for food systems? Because it can't be from now on, we're not going to eat, right? We, we have to be able to eat. So <laughs> yes, what, that's is, true. what that's are the changes? Yeah, what are the changes that need to be made in food systems so that we can bring that into alignment with planetary responsibility? Yeah, so, so luckily we, we have actually quite some scientific evidence to answer that question. One piece of, of that evidence is um, the, the Eat Lancet uh, commission that I, I led together with Professor Walter Willett at Harvard professor in public health of, of just two years back, where we put in place for the first time the planetary health diet, where we tried to quantitatively define a healthy diet for all people on earth that can stay within planetary boundaries. I mean, where are the synergies between eating so we can have good health and planetary health? And the conclusion is from, from the health scientists that a flexitarian diet where we have quite a drastic reduction of red meat consumption, a white meat consumption, increased of marine protein. So it's not necessarily going vegetarian, but it's a, uh, you know, going from 700 grams of red meat consumption per capita per week in the, in the rich part of the world down to 150 grams. So it's a drastic reduction, much more fruit, nuts, vegetables, plant-based proteins. So that, that's one part of the solution space. And that's interesting because it has a beautiful win-win. Okay. We eat more plant-based proteins. We can therefore share more of the existing farmland with the growing mm. population in the world. And we reduce climate change impacts and biodiversity impacts. But the second element of this is that we have to transition very fast into sustainable food production. The beauty is that we have the solutions for this. We know how to have better crop rotations, water harvesting systems, conservation agriculture, which is to transition away from plowing into copying nature to have minimum tillage systems. That we have science today, you know, with all the genetic research coming, you know, making leaps ahead, for example, like the Land Institute, developing new forms of perennial staple food crops. And that sounds very technical, but you can just imagine if a farmer doesn't have to sow, plow and sow for your wheat and your maize every year, but instead you plant your maize and, and wheat and you can harvest over four, five, six years because it goes from being an annual crop to becoming like a perennial bush. And these perennial crops have root systems that are much, much deeper much more resilient, much more carbon in the soil, and much less diesel in the tractor. So, you know, there is a whole package of, of system solutions that uh, is available and ready to scale. So I think we have an agricultural revolution and a, and, a, and a health revolution that we can put in place right now. And And I mean, the numbers here are daunting. We know, for example, that, you know, the number of malnourished in the world, the roughly one billion are equal to the number of obese in the world, which actually mm. exceed that, that billion. So we have a world where, where the food system is broken, both in terms of unhealth and in terms of planetary risk. So, yeah. so there is a, such a huge win-win here. Yeah. This year, we have the UN Global Food System Summit, which will be probably in between the COP meeting on biodiversity and the COP meeting on climate in Glasgow. I hope 
that there will be some some real momentum there because uh, we've been we've been walking around this issue for forever. Yeah, thank you. And it's so great. I'm really glad that we got back to solutions on the agricultural system because I think people really want to know what they can do. And it's such yeah. a fundamental part of our relationship with the world around us. So that's really, really helpful. And and like you say, the kind of coincidence of health and planetary health is just remarkable in all these things. Um, yeah. we, we have one closing question that Christiana will ask you in just a minute. Um, the other thing which you've spent a lot of your time and energy on in terms of solutions, and I'm trying to focus on some of these less obvious solutions because people kind of get now energy system transformation electric vehicles but heavy transport has been a really pernicious part um, of our system that's been difficult to transform and you've kind of really taken that on as well and asked what could the solutions be can you just give us a quick overview of what are some of the solutions everything we buy and consume comes through some form of heavy transport or trucking how are we going to get on top of that and get that where it needs to be for the type of transformation you're talking about yeah, and let me describe that that solution, not primarily in in technical terms, but but rather in 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 kind of tipping point terms. How can you tip the logic in the whole global heavy transport sector? So to begin with, as Christiana knows better than anyone, this is one of the difficult to abate sectors. I mean, this is the the heavy transport trucks are are in this area <clears throat> that is so difficult to. To get get off the combustion engine because of the sheer challenge of how do you put batteries in electrifying big trucks too heavy too expensive, and and therefore it's in the difficult to abate sector. Secondly, we have been testing uh, different ways of accelerating transformative change by by trying to learn from natural ecosystems because when you look at natural ecosystems, if you are in a rainforest or in a marine system. You always find a food web with the top predators. You always have a few species like wolves and cod in some areas and uh, big sharks in other systems that are so-called keystone actors. And these keystone actors are not a majority. They are a minority, but they determine the outcome for the entire ecosystem by, by the sheer importance of their individual role in the whole ecosystem. So we've been applying this methodology and looking at can we find keystone actors, not keystone species, out in economic sectors. And in this case, when we looked at the European uh, market, which is the single largest economic region, we found that there are six big truck makers that produce trucks across the entire European Union. And that these are keystone actors in the sense that not only are they very few, but they also control such a large economic unit and are global players. And moreover, when you look at any sector today, if it is in textile or food retail or in any consumer goods, they're all dependent on their scope three emissions, particularly on transport. So we invited these, this group of, um, of truck makers at the CEO level, this finite group of six, and they all came for a, a closed science business dialogue and agreed to commit at a pre-competitive level to science-based targets of stopping to sell combustion engine trucks starting 2040, in just 20 years' time. And our hypothesis is that if you get Daimler, one of them, the world's largest truck maker, Volvo, Scania, this is Ford, DAF, Iveco, these big actors, to adopt science-based targets, they don't represent all the truck makers in the world, 
but they are keystone actors potentially that if they join forces and go public and start investing R&D and say that we are now going to you know, cut emissions by half every decade, we are phasing yeah. out in 20 years' time, this can spill over and potentially change the logic across the whole value chain, not only in their sector, but potentially also in other sectors. Because suddenly H&M can say, yeah, my God, here we have a solution for our scope three emissions because we can buy zero carbon trucks from Daimler or from Iveco or from any one of these keystone actors. So that's the thinking, to get kind of a vertical and a horizontal tipping point in terms of accelerated change. So that, that's the thinking behind this. Then on the solution side, there isn't one silver bullet. What, what we see in our assessments is that electrification is one solution. Hydrogen is one very mm-hmm. important one for the heavy truck sector. We see that biofuels will inevitably be a, a transition solution because they can be used in the current diesel engine structure. So it's, yeah. it's kind of a bridge technology. So, so we, we'll, we will certainly see a quite a, quite a diverse mm. transition here. But interestingly, they all stepped up and said, we are on board and we see this as, a, as, a, as an exciting, competitive, and quite frankly, my assessment is, as a survival strategy for yeah. these industries because they see the writing on the wall. Amazing. I love that thinking around ecological, especially ecological design thinking as a campaign tool to change the world. It's fantastic. Well, Johan, that um, that concept of uh, keystone actors is is so pivotal, as you say, it's so critical. And it, um, it, one example that we've been working with is the um, Asset Owner Alliance, where we are bringing together those um, those keystone actors in the financial space. We started this conversation with you um, in, when you dropped us into total despair and you brought us through to the solution space or at least to the potential space. Um, and as you say, that is the, um, that, that's the gamut that we run between optimism and outrage. Um, so the final question that we always ask all our guests is, where, where is your balance? Where, where do you find, you know, your fulcrum there in that seesaw between um, outrage and optimism? Mm. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very important question, Christiana. And um, it's not easy to answer because, of course, as I'm sure it is for you as well, it isn't a kind of an average flat state that uh, is constant. I mean, I, I go very much up and down, to be honest. And uh, I mean, my conclusion is that I'm, I'm more optimistic than than during several years, actually. And and my my strongest optimism at this point really comes from what I would call the the emerging G three on climate with with. Uh, U.S., the European Union, and China now stepping up behind science, uh, adopting a net zero target for 2050 or no later than 2060 for China. And, and you can just imagine, these are, this is also a keystone actor type situation because here we have the three largest economic powers in the world aligning with science and saying that in 30 years' time, in one generation, we are going down to zero. We are going to reach net zero. And we're doing it in a way that will still deliver on, on human well-being and economic development. And, and I think that's our chance. That, that's where our chance is. 
And um, so I'm I'm kind of leaning more towards the, the the positive side at this time. But but I should also admit that every time I see you, Christian, I cannot be anything than uh, than having a bit of a smile on my face. So um, I, I think I think it's um, you help you help me a lot there as well. To be honest. Try living with it, Johan. It's in all of our contracts. We can't be in it. Oh, I see. (laughs) It's also how we get paid. We just get the smile and that's it. That's good enough. Yeah, so so for the listeners, I mean, you you don't know this, but of course, in this podcast, I I see Christiana in front of me uh, on on a screen. So so that that helps as well. So uh, I might choose to have you in front of me on my desk. Well, Johan, you're too you're you're too kind. Thank you very much. But um, thank you in particular, Johan, for uh, for your so constant, dependable, detailed work throughout years and throughout decades. I told you many, many, many years ago. I can't even remember how many um, that you were my total favorite uh, scientist because you really translate science into concepts that we non-hard scientists can actually understand. Um, Sometimes you give us messages such as today that we have difficulty digesting, but but you certainly put it in terms that we can understand. So, um, Johan, thank you for just a lifetime, a lifetime of work. We're truly grateful. Thank you and great being with you for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So, I mean, all of us have known Johan Rockström for a long time and it's always a remarkable and sobering experience to hear him deliver just with this unbelievable deadpan clarity exactly the severity of the situation we're facing. What a service he's providing to humanity to provide this wake-up call. What did you guys leave that discussion with? Well, I tell you, I found it difficult as you were to find words um, after he told us so eloquently that three of the nine planetary boundaries, um, the Arctic summarized, the melting glaciers of Western Antarctica and the tropical coral reefs have been um, exceeded. Uh, I, You know, it, it is something that I have been placing into the future, but that I had never dared, and I think daring is the word, I had never dared to put it into my present. Um, It's just, yeah, it's just too painful for words. Thank you, Christiana. No, I mean, you know, I, I I kind of went for a walk actually after the interview, and I and I kind of thought about you know how I felt, and um, you know, stating the obvious, um, this is a time of great meaning for us all, um, and we need to speak uh, of realism and not be defensive or aggressive, but assertive and understanding. I guess like a, a good parent or good parents to each other. Um, I mean, I'm not a parent, but this is what I understand the, the, the good parenting is all about. I think it's a time for us to be patient with each other. And, and, and I think we need to be calm. And with the changes in the US, the debate seems, you know, kind of like over. The world is moving, you know, pers- persuasively towards change. And we're going to change everything in ourselves, our communities, our work, our societies. And we're not going to ignore the facts, but we're going to cherish them as in a medical emergency. And that's something we've learned from COVID. 
to take facts seriously. Yeah, I mean, we, we've always known these moments are coming, right? Where it's like that there's tipping points and then actually you enter a period of consequences where this stuff begins to to really happen. And it's it's heartbreaking, it really is. I mean, the coral reefs was the one that, that really hit me and quite what we're facing there is hard to really get your mind around. I mean, it, it, just Johan himself, I mean, it, it, one of the things I thought of listening to him is just how different people communicate when they're concerned with scientific objectivity and truth rather than trying to persuade you of something <laughs> and that's kind of what gives him his power right i mean so much of the time the people we put into positions of authority are trying to engineer a particular outcome but there's such a lot of power in someone just giving absolute clarity this is what it is we have to face it and in that in that is that seed of stubborn optimism that we've talked about is through facing it and deciding to do everything necessary and everything possible while we can but that's 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 the root, and he's such an amazing um, communicator of that reality. Christiana, you're right. Christiana's having a, another think, a serious uh, yeah. reflection. Yeah. Bring us back, Christiana. Yeah, I'm just. I'm bring just, us back. I'm just back. Well, I'm not sure. I'm. I'm just. You know, I'm back there at that moment when we um, when we interviewed him. Yeah, I guess the the you know the difficult avenue here path forward is to for all of us to dedicate ourselves with respect to the planet to um regenerating the resilience in those ecosystems where we still have some elasticity, right? I think what he was mm. telling us is we've lost the elasticity of some of these um, and and that's tragic, and it will have knock-on effects that are difficult to even imagine. But there are other ecosystems and other boundaries that still have some elasticity in them, and that's that is the purpose of our collective mission here: is to not let that elasticity pop uh, like these have on our watch, but rather to re-inject the, um, the resilience to get that elasticity back. And so I think, you know, the, the, the sobering thought here is that the planet that we will bequeath to our children will not be the planet that we inherited from our parents. It will be different. It will definitely be a changed planet. Um, and that path is not an easy one, but it is an, I, I think, for the human race, an unavoidable one. And a quite exciting one, let me say, uh, just to come back to our optimism, right? But we have to make mental space for the dents that are in those dreams, those dents of the Arctic summer ice, the Western Antarctica and the coral reefs. Those are permanent dents. And just a tiny thing, like um, I was laughing with you, Christiana, but it was like nervous laughter. Um, <laughs> But, you know, somebody once said um, in all previous crises, we had to do something. And this is the first crisis where we have to stop doing things. <laughs> I mean, we have to, you know, decarbonize and there's lots of action and insulation and renewable energy. But you know what I mean? It shouldn't be beyond us to kind of pull back from excess. But, Tom, you have the masterful way of weaving this into a pure beam of positive uh, <laughs> capability. After that introduction, I definitely don't. Um 
No, I mean, I think this is this is what it is, right? I mean, you know, Johan gives it absolutely straight. And the way that hit you with a full force, Christiana, I can so relate to, and I'm sure many of the listeners can too. By my count, that was four minutes from the depths of feeling it to back to optimism, which is quite impressive. And, <laughs> and, and what we need to do, right? We need to find a way to feel it and continue to feel it, but move back to fight. <laughs> a little bit giddy. That's right. Know, but, but fine, you know, it's kind of coming up sort of the psychological bends, but, you know, at the surface, breathing air and, um, you know, we... And on we, we we, we, exactly. And on we go. Pulling yeah. myself from the bootstraps here. Oh, boy. Let's pull those bootstraps pretty quickly. Now, I do think that uh, one thing we can offer the listeners at the end of this is some music. So one mm-hmm. of the things we're bringing into season three is our partnership with So Far Sounds, uh, bringing you music every week, songs with a purpose. Uh, that has been, uh, as far as we understand, a very popular part of the series last year. So we hope you continue to enjoy it. This week, we are bringing you an amazing piece of music from Ayani, who's from Barbados. And one change we've made this season is that rather than them writing to us about the music, they've actually provided us voice notes. So we're going to say goodbye. We're going to hand you over to Ayani, who's going to explain this piece of music. And then Clay is going to read you the credits as only he can. So thank you for listening to us this week. It's great to be back. I know this was a tough start with Johan, but this is what we're facing. We've got to be honest about it. We've got to dig deep. We've got to find a way to find the courage to be stubborn, to be optimistic, but also to be realistic. This is a tough fight. We've got everything in our favor for this exciting year to make it one of transformation. And we look forward to sharing it with you. Thanks for being here this week. Here's Ayani. See you next week. Bye. I think it's really, really important that artists engage with climate change, um, inequality and other social issues after taking the time to educate themselves because these things affect the human experience. And if art is meant to be a recollection of what it means to be alive and what it means to love and to feel what could be more important than the things that affect us that we never chose to engage with, that we never chose to have to fight against. And I think that as artists, we really have the opportunity to change the world one piece, one creation at a time, because I do think we need to reflect the times as artists. And yeah, I think it's an honor. My biggest inspiration in creating this record was my personal lived experience and a question that I have asked time and time again throughout my lifetime, which is, what is patriotism? And so in the creation of this song, I really wanted to hold space, first of all, for my mourning of the things that have been lost and the things that have been taken from us and the lives that continue to fall every generation Because we will not confront this basic question of what is American history and legacy and what are we actually celebrating when we call people the patriots? I don't think the patriots storm capitals or polling places. I think the patriots were the ones fighting the summer against police brutality. I think the patriots are abolitionists. I think the patriots are people who are thinking about our humanity and our future long term and not the greed and the wealth that we can accumulate in this lifetime. So those were the things I was meditating on. And this song is a space for me to grieve that and process that and hopefully encourage people to do the same. The Patriots Pledge allegiance to our genocide, its generation 
Yes, the day two hundred thousand died, so I pray for revolution, for quicker retribution. Hot hell, the stocks don't sell. It's a nation where believers claim that they're pro-life, while kids in cages lie strange from mothers. But they'll tie their welcome Sunday Like a jacket never always Since you choose Who do you pray to? We at the mark Where it's getting harder To our history Now we raise you all you claim to be I don't want to be a patriot. Ah, patriot. Don't wanna be a patriot. The patriots, but all the fair to cast our vote, civic. Becoming rogue, but tomorrow they'll fall silent. Make a savior of the white man. Still fast me. Hope is the last thing I feel. Somehow they're jealous and protesting their democracy. Eager agents behind the notion of supremacy, but they.
So there you go. Episode one of season three. Yes, Ayani. What an incredible voice and an amazing, amazing tune titled The Patriots. And you know you want more. So I've got links to her music and socials in the show notes. Thank you, Ayani, for welcoming us into the new year. Season three is going to have more incredible artists just like Ayani. So, you know, it's just one of the many perks of being a regular listener to Outrage and Optimism. Hit subscribe so you don't miss another note. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Marina Mancilla German is the executive producer. Clay Carnell is the producer. Cristiana Figueres, Tom Rivet-Karnak, and the Paul Dickinson are the hosts. And the rest of the team is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Brea Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. Thank you to Johan Rockstrom for joining us as our guest this week. And as mentioned earlier in the episode, our listener survey is still active and we're reading every answer that comes in. So take advantage. We're closing it soon, but we want to hear from you. Link is in the show notes. Thank you for filling that out. And I'm not sure if you caught it before the interview, but we did something. We're going to do a lot more this season. We answered a question sent to us on Twitter. Sophie, our communications and content coordinator, is watching our DMs like an eagle. So follow us, send us a question, slide into our DMs, you know. At Global Optimism on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And thank you to Ahmed for your question this week. These credits went fast. That is a wrap on episode one of season three. Next week is the final episode in our investigative series into the future of transport. And it's all about the future of urban mobility. We've had such an incredible time making this series, diving deep into the issues that are gonna decide what this next decade and the future are gonna look like. And that subscribe button isn't going to press itself. So don't miss out. We'll see you right back here next week. On Thursday, look out, we're changing things up. See you then.